everyone. This is a little smaller group, but that's okay. Some people would rather answer their doorbell, I guess, tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you'll be fine, I'm sure. So, Anyway, well, I've been enjoying this class, and I, I hope everyone else is enjoying it. I know there's some people that are not able to be here, and they've said they're kind of watch or listening to it later on faith life which is great so um but we'll get uh into it here i'll open with a word of prayer and then we'll we'll get into our our material lord thank you for the opportunity we have and the foundations you do build for us and lord even many of the people here we've been around for a long time in the church but you still have something to teach us and we thank you for that Renew our spirits, Lord, and refresh us, Lord, in in what we're about to do. Um, May we be more and more convinced of the truthfulness of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have, this is week four. Oh, we have three new students this evening. Leland, (laughs) Gary, and Susie, so welcome to you. Um, we can try to get you, I can either email you the other sheets um, and print them, otherwise we can print them here and uh, build your book back, so um, otherwise they might be here somewhere, I just don't know what we do with them after we're done, I usually print them up, but no problem. So our first session was on Revelation, so I only have, well I have four previous students, so what were the two major types of revelation? Close, general, and special. Yes. So, and general was what? General revelation is what we can see, like everybody sees around us just in nature or through the world that God created. Special revelation is something specifically given, and specific revelation probably isn't far off the mark. There could be prophets. But we're, considered, we're concerned mostly with the Word of God right now. Um, and so we went through that. And we went through, what was the other topics? Anyone remember? You can look in your notes and remember. What was week two on? Inspiration, which means breathed. God, God breathed out the Scripture. And then uh, last time was? Anyone? Authority, yes. So, uh, tonight we're going to talk about the truthfulness of Scripture. Another word that is very often used, and we're going to probably use them interchangeably, is inerrancy. So you've probably heard that word too. A lot of statement of faith, like the CMA statement of faith, has the words inerrancy. We believe the Scripture is inerrant. And we're going to talk about what that means. So, as I've done often, I'm going to go back to a statement that will be most of it in your first notes as well, but I'm pulling out a couple uh, just to look at it again, but I highly recommend looking over that Westminster Confession of Faith, especially the part which I gave you in the first lesson, which is on the scriptures. But in sections uh, 4 and 9, I'll read from those, and you'll have them on the screens. They should be in your notes. Um, the authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. And therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. 
And then the other part, 9, said the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So basically that's saying if, if there's something that is not absolutely clear in Scripture, we need to look somewhere else in Scripture to make it more clear for ourselves. Um, and then I, I have, in a moment here, I'll get to some other things that, I'm, that you should have in your notes too. Um, but uh, inerrancy is not solely a presuppositional deduction from the doctrine that God is the author of Scripture. This is a quote from Harold Linsell. But is expressly taught in Scripture. So in other words, he's saying Scripture actually teaches that Scripture is inerrant. It's not just like people in the church later on said, oh, hey, this would be a great doctrine to teach, and let's say that Scripture's inerrant. Scripture itself teaches it. Um, and expressly, Scripture talks about the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus, and the bodily re- resurrection of our Lord from the dead. And so those are truths that we can put, you know, take to the bank. The biblical teaching includes an affirmation of scriptural inerrancy, and uh, the doctrine of inerrancy must be considered an induction from the text, textual phenomena, in other words, what's in the text, um, as well as an advanced verdict of the so, so-called discrepancy in the text. So <laughs> that's a lot of big words. What it means is that people will always say, well, there's discrepancy. This part of Scripture doesn't agree with this part of Scripture. And what we find is if we actually take the, mo- the time to go and study those passages, we find that they always are in agreement. They don't contradict each other. Um, in fact, one of the things, as I was studying and preparing for tonight, uh, someone had made the point that a lot of people will say, oh, you know, you're talking to a skeptic, they'll say, oh, there's all kinds of errors in the Bible. But if you ever ask someone to show you one, they usually can't. They'll say, oh, you know, well, show me a verse that you're talking about. And most people who say there's all kinds of errors in the Bible have probably never even opened one. And so if you get your faith challenged because of that, then, um, you know, be aware of that, that people say those things, but they're usually saying it because someone else said it, you know. It's like all the other rumors we hear all the time. So, all right, I'm going to read, a, a, I'm going to read and then comment on some an extended text here from uh, Systematic Theology from Wayne Grudem. But I think this is, um, sometimes you look at stuff and you say, could I put it much better myself? No, so I, I, I'm going to read from what someone else has written here, partly. So the first point that he makes in this part is that God cannot lie or speak falsely. The, ens- the essence of the authority of Scripture is its ability to compel us to believe and to obey it and to make such belief and obedience equivalent to believing and obeying God himself. In other words, if we're obeying Scripture, we're obeying God. Okay? And because this is so, it's needful to consider the truthfulness of Scripture since to believe all the words of Scripture implies confidence in the complete truthfulness of the Scripture that we believe. Since the biblical writers repeatedly affirm that the words of the Bible, through human, uh, though human words, are God's own words, it is appropriate to look at biblical texts that talk about the character of God's words and to apply these to the character of the words of Scripture. 
Specifically, there are a number of biblical passages that talk about the truthfulness of God's speech. Titus 1-2 speaks of God who never lies, or in more literal translation would say the unlying God. Because God is a God who cannot speak a lie, his words can always be trusted. Since all of scripture is spoken by God, all of scripture must be unlying, okay? just as God himself is. There can be no untruthfulness in Scripture. Um, Hebrews 6.18 6, mentions two unchangeable things, God's oath and his promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Here, the author says not merely that God does not lie, but that it is not, impos- that it is not possible for him to lie. Although the immediate reference is to oaths and promises, if it's impossible to God to lie... In those situations, then certainly it's impossible for him to ever lie. Uh, Jesus harshly rebukes those who tell the truth only when under oath. So we can apply that to God as well. God doesn't only tell the truth if he's under oath. He always tells the truth. Um, David says to God in 2 Samuel 7, 8, uh, 7, 28, You are God, your words are true. And uh, so those are some of the things we need to kind of keep in mind. Scripture affirms this doctrine again and again. So the next big major point he makes is that all the words in Scripture, therefore, are completely true and without error on any part. So now we're going from the fact that Scripture speaks the truth to the fact that every word of Scripture is the truth. Since the words of the Bible are God's words, and since God cannot lie or speak falsely, It is correct to conclude that there is no untruthfulness or error in any part of the words of Scripture. We find this affirmed several places in the Bible. The words of the Lord are words that are pure silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm uh, 12.6. Here the psalmist uses vivid imagery to speak of the undiluted purity of God's words. There is no imperfection in them. Also, in Proverbs 35, we read, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. It's not just some of the words of Scripture that are true, but every word. In fact, God's word is fixed in heaven for all eternity. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, 89. Jesus can speak of the eternal nature of his own words. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away, Matthew 24, 35. God's speech is placed in marked contrast to all human speech. For God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should repent, Numbers 23, 19. So these verses affirm explicitly that what was implicit in the requirement that we believe all the words of Scripture, namely that there is no untruthfulness, no falsehood affirmed in any of the statements of the Bible. The next major point he makes, that God's words are the ultimate standard of truth. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The difference, uh, let's see here, where did I go? The Bible is God's word, and God's word is the ultimate definition of, of what is true and what is not true. God's word itself is truth. Thus, we are to think of the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth. 
the reference point against which every other claim of truthfulness is to be measured. And these assert- those assertions that conform with Scripture are true, while those that do not conform with Scripture are not true. What then is truth? Truth is what God says. And we have what God says in the Bible. The fourth major point he makes, might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? Will any new scientific or historical fact ever be discovered that will contradict the Bible? Here we can say with confidence that this will never happen. It is in fact impossible. If any supposed fact is ever discovered that is said to contradict Scripture, then if we have understood Scripture rightly, that fact must be false. Because God, the author of Scripture, knows all true facts, past, present, and future. No fact will ever turn up that God did not know about ages ago and take into account when he caused Scripture to be written. Every true fact is something that God has known already from all eternity and is something that therefore cannot contradict God's speech in Scripture. Nevertheless, it must be remembered that scientific or historical study, as well as other kinds of study or creation, can cause us to re-examine Scripture. Okay, so let's say everyone thought Scripture said something for a long time, and now some science shows it. It's okay to re-examine the Scripture and say, is that what we really, uh, is it really teach what we thought it said? Here's an example. The Bible does not teach that the sun goes around the earth, for it only uses descriptions of phenomena as we see them from our vantage point and does not purport to be describing the workings of the universe from some arbitrary fixed point somewhere out in space. Yet, until the study of astronomy advanced enough to demonstrate the rotation of the earth on its axes, people assumed that the Bible taught that the sun goes around the earth. Then, the study of scientific data prompted a re-examination of the appropriate biblical texts. Thus, whenever confronted with some fact that is said to contradict Scripture, we must not only examine the data uh, to demonstrate the facts in question, we must also re-examine the appropriate biblical text to see if the Bible really teaches what we thought it taught. That's what I always say. Go back to Scripture. Go back to Scripture. Go back to Scripture. And we do that, too, if science seems to be contradicting Scripture. We should never fear, but always welcome any new facts that may be discovered in any legitimate area of human research or study. For example, discoveries by archaeologists working in Syria have brought to light the Ebla tablets. These extensive records from the period around 2000 BC will eventually throw great light on our understanding of the world of the patriarchs and the events connected with the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Should Christians entertain any lingering apprehension that the publication of such data will prove some fact in Genesis to be incorrect? Certainly not. We should eagerly anticipate the publication of all such data with the absolute confidence that if it is correctly understood, it will be consistent with Scripture and it will confirm the accuracy of Scripture. No true fact will ever contradict the words of God who knows all facts and who never lies. Then written scripture is our final authority. It's important to realize that the final form in which scripture remains authoritative is its written form. It was the words of God written on the tablets of stone that Moses deposited in the Ark of the Covenant. Later, God commanded Moses and subsequent prophets to write their words in a book. 
And it was written in Scripture that Paul said it was God-breathed. We've talked about that already. Similarly, it's Paul's writings that are a command from the Lord and that could be classified with the other Scriptures, 2 Peter 3.16. So in other words, Peter referred to Paul's writings as Scripture and with authority. Um, for, um, for example, people will sometimes refer to what Jesus really said and claim that when we translate the Greek words of the Gospels back to the Aramaic language Jesus spoke, we will gain a better understanding of Jesus' words than was given by the writers of the Gospels. In fact, it is sometimes said that this work of reconstructing Jesus' words in Aramaic enables us to correct the erroneous translators, uh, translations made by the Gospel authors. In other cases, people have claimed to know what Paul really thought, right? When he wrote, even when it's different, when the meaning of the words he wrote, you know, people like to do that, right? Um, I'm sure none of you ever run into this in the real world, right? Oh, I know really what Melissa was thinking when she said that, you know. We do that all the time. We call it mind reading, right? Um, And... Or they'll say something like, what Paul should have said if he had been consistent with the rest of his theology is this. (laughs) Right? And other people have spoken of the church situation to which Matthew was writing, and they've attempted to give normative force either to that situation or the solution they think Matthew was attempting to bring about. In all of those instances, we must admit that asking about the words or situations that lie behind the text of scriptures may at times be helpful to us in understanding what the text means. Nevertheless, our hypothetical reconstructions of these words or situations can never replace or compete with Scripture itself as the final authority. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think about it, like it or not like it, we have to go with what Scripture says. Nor should we ever allow them to contradict or call into question the accuracy of any words of Scripture. We must continually remember that we have in the Bible God's very words and we must not try to improve on them in some way, for this cannot be done. Rather, we should seek to understand them and then trust them and obey them with our whole heart. All right, now, you have these references in your notes, but I'm going to just go through all of them really fast, somewhat fast. They'll be on the screen for you to see. Um, But it's always good to have what I'm teaching reinforced by what God says in his word, so... So here we go. Deuteronomy 18.22 When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass to come or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Psalm 18.30 This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 119.142, your righteousness is righteous forever and your law is true. Proverbs 30.5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. John 8.26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 10.35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, again, 
scripture can't be broken. It will be always true. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So when you see another scripture that says this is the will of God, your sanctification, and you say, well, how do I do that? Apply God's word. <laughs> sanctify them in the truth, Jesus said. And your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.15-17, to 17, Paul is writing to Timothy there and reminds him from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This one, I think, has popped up almost every week with the study, 2 Peter 1, 19-21. We have the prof- prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Those are called rhetorical questions. Second Samuel seven twenty eight. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Psalm twelve six. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Matthew 24.35, Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my words will, never, will not pass away. And then Hebrews 6.18, which I alluded to earlier, two, in, two unchangeable things. It is impossible for God to lie, we have, who have fled for refuge must have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the next thing in your notes is something called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. So a little history on this is that this started in the mid-70s, late-70s, where in the church, the inerrancy of the Bible was under attack. It still is today. If you look at almost every denomination that's now gone kooky, it started here. This is why this is important. This is why, why this is the first study other than Sunday morning sermons that I'm doing here because I think it's that important. We have to defend this doctrine. We have to apply it to ourselves, and we need to remember about the inerrancy of Scripture. So what that was was uh, it was almost like the old biblical councils in a sense where they had the uh, scholars from all over come and they would debate like we need to put out a statement and you have the, the uh, Westminster Confession for example is one of those um, the Nicene Creed the Jerusalem Council met that's even alluded to in scripture and so these were meetings of people that came together um, and R.C. Sproul was the editor and at the, towards the end of your notes somewhere in there in blue letters there's a link there he has an excellent teaching where he takes point by point on this statement. I highly recommend it. Um, I listen on, on the app on my iPhone, but there's a website as well. And I think it's like 16 classes that are roughly 18 to 20 minutes. 
excellent, excellent. He's a far better teacher. And uh, he's dead, though, so you can't go off and find him to leave the church. He'll still have to stay here. But um, anyway. <laughs> yes, that's right. We were up there at his uh, ministry headquarters, which was awesome. But anyway, um, I, I'm not going to read the prelude or whatever that was at the beginning. That, um, but I'm gonna, I want to go just quickly through the statements. Number one, God, who is Himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal Himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as Creator and Lord, Redeemer and Judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to Himself. Number two. Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understanding its to understand its meaning. Number four, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states by about God's acts and creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Number five, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. And here's their articles of affirmation and denial. I know you could just read these on your own, but there's always something helpful about hearing and reading at the same time. So, so if you want to follow along in there. Article 1. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative word of God. We deny that the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. There's a reason they put that statement in there. The church doesn't get to decide. Not, not a local church, not a denomination, not an institution, whatever you want to call that, in Rome. They don't get to decide what it means. <laughs> That's what they're talking about there. <laughs> right? So, and, and in that, if you do go and listen to R.C. Sproul's lessons on this, he goes into that in a lot more detail, why they have that particular statement there, and it, it's really interesting. Article 2, we affirm that the Scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience and that the authority of the church is subordinate. To that of Scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. Which is interesting because this was written by a council, so to speak, and he's saying even what we're writing has to be under the authority of the Scripture. Article 3 We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation or only becomes revelation in an encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. Article 4, we affirm that God who made mankind in his image has used language as a means of revelation. 
We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness. That's a good word, creatureliness. Um, We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. Article 5, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Spirit's was in the Holy Scripture uh, scriptures was progressive. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever contradicts, corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given, that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. Article 6, we affirm that the whole of Scripture and all its parts, down to the very words of the original, were given by divine inspiration. We deny that the inspiration of Scripture can rightly be affirmed of the whole without the parts, or some parts, but not the whole. Article 7, we affirm that inspiration was the work which God, by his Spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of Scripture is divine, The mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us. We deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight or to heightened states of consciousness of any kind. Article 8, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. Article 9, we affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the biblical authors were moved to speak and write. We deny that the finitude and or fallenness of these writers, by necessity or otherwise, introduced distortion or falsehood into God's word. Article 10, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text, that's the original text of scripture Uh, so the first writing which is the providence of god in the providence of god can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy we further affirm that copies and translations of scripture are the word of god to the extent that they faithfully represent the original we deny that any essential element of the christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs we further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Article 11, we affirm that Scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. We deny that it is possible for the Bible to be at the same time infallible and errant in its assertions. Infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished but not separated. We're getting close to the end. Article 12. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. Article 13, we affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. So at the time they wrote this, there was actually an argument about we shouldn't even use the word inerrant because 
you know, people didn't like it or whatever. So they even had to throw that into the statement. <laughs> we deny that it is proper to evaluate Scripture according to the standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena, such as lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole in round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material in parallel accounts, or the use of free citation. So what he's saying there is, is kind of important, uh, and so I want to just talk about that for a second. And, and one of the examples that is given, if you ever listen to his lecture, is if, you know, they, people love to mock the Bible because they say, oh, you know, they said, oh, the sun circles the earth in the Bible. But he said, if you tune into the morning weather report, what do they say? Sunrise and sunset at times are this, right? So we, we don't call the meteorologist at the TV station and say, you know, you, you're misleading people. You know, you're, <laughs> you're going to make people think that, that the earth is flat or something. You know, you don't do that. Another example is, so say the Bible describes a battle and it says 8,000 people died. Well, it doesn't mean the author went and said, you know, um, well, I made sure it wasn't 8,001 and it definitely wasn't 7,999. But we use those numbers, you know. It's kind of, we use, we use rounding, right? If I, if I said, well, I'm probably about 10 minutes from Gary and Susie's house. I'm not lying because it may only be 9 or it may be 12. I'm, I'm just giving a, an estimate. And, and the Bible does that. And then it talks about hyperbole. Jesus himself used hyperbolic statements, exaggerations to make a point in a sense. Uh, that doesn't mean it's false, you know. Um, and things like if we said, well, everyone in town was there. Well, not literally every person in town was there, so I think I've made the point. We'll move on. Article 14, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of Scripture. We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitiate the truth claims of the Bible. In other words, if something hasn't been proven to be scripturally true yet, some scientific fact, that doesn't mean that it never will be. Article 15, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the teaching of the Bible about inspiration. We deny that Jesus' teaching about Scripture may be dismissed by appeals to accommodation or to any natural limitation of his humanity. Article 16, we affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the church's faith throughout its history. We deny that inerrancy is a doctrine invented by scholastic Protestantism or is a reactionary position postulated in response to negative higher criticism. Article 17, we affirm that the Holy Spirit bears witness to the scriptures, assuring believers of the truthfulness of God's written word. We deny that this witness of the Holy Spirit operates in isolation from or against scripture. Article 18, we affirm that the, scripture, the text of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatical historical exegesis taking account of its literary forms and devices and that scripture is to interpret scripture we deny that the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing dehistorizing or discounting its teaching or rejecting it's easy for me to say right or rejecting its claims to authorship 
And finally, Article 19, we affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith. We further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that confession is necessary for salvation. However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and to the church. And we have seen that in our time when Scripture is no longer considered to be the authoritative Word of God. Churches go the wrong way, and people go the wrong way. So, uh, so then after that is that link, and that, that is a great teaching. On Basically, he takes these articles point by point and, and explains them as being a guy who was there since he was the editor. So... Um, so, in your notes, we should be... Oh, there's one other sheet. I, I only have a small class, but if you're, a, if you're looking for extra credit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give 50 extra points. Well, we're not taking scores, but... Uh, so, th- I found this to be such good. This is chapter 5 of uh, Wayne Grudem, who is a theologian, Systematic Theology, um, Basically, is a whole chapter on the inerrancy of Scripture, and, and it was so good, I just printed a copy for anyone who'd like one. It's only 7,000 words, which is probably less than an hour read for most people. So um, if anyone wants that, I've got these here. Otherwise, do we need two small groups, or should we just all be one big small group this, this evening? Does that sound good? All right, so maybe we can turn our chairs somehow, and I'm going to sit down. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's that's actually true, and that's part of what they were trying to combat. They were trying to confront the church leaders and say, "Hey, this is still important. We need to." And yeah, there were leaders at that time that. Yeah. So. Yeah, true. All right.